Episode 9 of War in the Book of Mormon Part 2.3 Antichrist in the Book of Mormon Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this episode we will discuss the individuals and groups declared as antichrists throughout the Book of Mormon. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I want to begin by answering a question I expect that some listeners have after the previous episode when I stated that Mormon was the second most important person in the Book of Mormon. The natural question is, who is the first? I hope that many of you already know the answer to that question. For those who don't, the answer is Jesus Christ, who sits as a central figure of the entire scriptural record. Now, on to this episode, where we will discuss three individuals and two groups who could be labeled as antichrists. The three people are Sherem, whose story is told in Jacob chapter 1, verses 1 through 21, Nehor, who we read about in Alma chapter 1, verses 2 to 16, and Korahor, from Alma chapter 30, verses 6 to 60. The two groups of people are the priests of King Noah, who are foils to the prophet Abinadi, in Mosiah chapters 12 to 17, chapter 20, and chapters 23 and 24. And then the Zoramites, who are a people of some importance for conflict, whose philosophy is given in Alma chapters 31 to 35. There are at least two other groups that clearly will meet our criteria for Antichrist, but they are referred to as after the order of Nehor and I will address them as we talk about Nehor as an individual. Why talk about Antichrist at all in a podcast about war in the Book of Mormon? Antichrists serve as a sort of returning ideological bad guy throughout the story of the Book of Mormon. They present the antithesis of the prophets. In Episode 7, Part 2.1, when we discussed armed conflict in the small plates of Nephi, I expressed one of the recurring powerful promises in the Book of Mormon. If you obey the commandments of the Lord, then you prosper. Another version of this expression is that when the people are unified with God, then they are empowered and protected. Conversely, when they part with God, they separate from that protection and become enfeebled. This will play out again and again as the unity cycle plays out. What is an Antichrist? There are obvious answers. One who preaches against Christ. One who supersedes the position of Jesus Christ in the religious landscape, tries to be a redeemer, savior, divine guide, etc. The Bible Dictionary from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints defines Antichrist in the following way, and I quote, A word used by John, the revelator, 
to describe one who would assume the guise of Christ, but in reality would be opposed to Christ. In a broader sense, it is anyone or anything that counterfeits the true gospel or plan of salvation and that openly or secretly is set up in opposition to Christ. The great Antichrist is Lucifer, but he has many assistants, both as spirit beings and as mortals. Close quote. This is an excellent definition for the purposes of this discussion. Each of these groups and people sought, in a different way, to accomplish the broader goal of counterfeiting the true gospel of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of bad guys in the Book of Mormon. All of them could be characterized as an antichrist in some fashion. Not all of them are discussed in detail here. For example, we will discuss in some detail later in this podcast the Satan archetype in the Book of Mormon as a man named Amalekiah. He is not in the list of antichrists discussed in this episode. The main reason for this omission is that Amalekiah is described in significant detail within the record, and therefore he will get an entire episode, or a major portion of an episode, later on in the appropriate context. I am addressing each of these people and groups I am in this episode because they form a conceptual whole, and I think it works to do so here. In general, these people and groups tend to be outside the normal view of war or conflict in the Book of Mormon and might otherwise be missed as the podcast goes forward. I want to make a couple of general comments about each of the people and groups, and then I will discuss their philosophical approach one by one. As I present each one in detail, I will address each of the following categories. Scriptural location. I give this so that listeners can go to the source material and understand what has actually been said. I will only give snippets rather than reread the entire record. Physical location. Time frame or period in the historical record. Conflict. Who is it with whom the Antichrist interacts? Teachings. What did the Antichrist advocate? Actions. How did they behave? This is an interesting part that we explore in some detail for Amalekiah later on. A point of this entire discussion on the Book of Mormon throughout these episodes is that the Book of Mormon is written like a good story or a good movie. The Russian playwright and short story writer Anton Chekhov gives something referred to as Chekhov's gun, and I quote, "...remove everything that has no relevance to the story." If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. Close quote. Another version of this same quote is, If in the first act you have hung a pistol on the wall, then in the following one it should be fired. Otherwise, don't put it there. Close quote. Mormon follows this manner of writing. There are no extraneous details. I use this reference because I love it, and this is my podcast. And I hate movies that have unessential details. It is lazy writing. 
I want to emphasize that Mormon is not writing fiction, but he is writing purposefully. He is picking the characters and stories based off inspiration to meet his thesis. It has been several episodes, so I want to remind you that in the Book of Mormon, details matter. As with film, Mormon often shows us teachings more than he tells us through the preaching. For this reason, the actions of the Antichrist are often as or more informative than their teachings for helping us to identify Antichrist today, which is one of the main purposes of this episode. Intent. What was the Antichrist trying to do? Maybe it is surprising, but it isn't always the same thing, though they tend to be like jazz musicians as they riff off the same general theme. Character. Who was this guy? What was he like? Why did people listen to him? As with the actions, this can be as defensively informative as knowing what they taught, as we look at the Antichrist so prevalent in modern society, many of whom are quite interesting, intelligent, and pleasant to listen to. I will not provide names of specific present examples as I go through this list. However, I do want to point out that many modern Antichrists are not church-burning or church-protesting people who scream in front of the U.S. Supreme Court building about various Antichrist positions. We often describe Antichrists as if they are ugly in many ways, physically ugly, behaviorally ugly, and conceptually ugly. I think Mormon would and has disagreed. He gives us details on the attractiveness of the people, of their presentation style, and of their ideas. Antichrists can be smooth, pleasant, and the type of people you like and want to associate with. Results What happened in the interaction between the Antichrist and the person or people of Christ? And what were the ramifications of those interactions? We will go through the various people and groups in the chronological order that they existed. Now let's begin with Sherem. He is the first person identified as an Antichrist in the Book of Mormon. Here is a man confident enough in his beliefs that he is willing to challenge a person who is known to be a prophet of God. He was either supremely confident in himself, or he had a significant following that served to boost his sense of ultimate success. Or, as is probably more likely, it is some combination of the two. Sherem appears in Jacob chapter 7 verses 1 through 21. We're given about 927 words in this description. This takes place in the land of Nephi. It happens between the years 544 and 421 BC. I would suggest closer to the latter part of that time frame than the earlier. And the conflict is with Jacob 1. Remember, this Jacob is the son of Lehi and the brother of Nephi. His teachings, there should be no Christ, pervert the way of God and keep not the law of Moses. No man can know the future. There is no Christ. 
show me a sign. What did he do? His actions. He preached. He flattered. He labored diligently, meaning hard worker. He sought to debate Jacob. He had much power of speech. He, would, he requested a sign. What was he trying to do or his intent? To overthrow the doctrine of Christ, to lead away the hearts of the people, to shake Jacob's faith. We're not told very much about his character, but we are told that he was learned and that he had a perfect knowledge of the language. That means he's a good speaker, well-crafted, a good rhetorician. And what are the results? He led away many hearts, which means he probably had a large following. He was confounded by Jacob. He was smitten by God for a sign. And on his deathbed, he recanted all that he had taught against the doctrine of Christ. And then he died. The power of God came upon witnesses of the events, meaning they were able to undo the damage that Sherem caused. Sherem dies, as will become obvious of the five distinct antichrists discussed, four of them die in some connection with their opposition to the doctrine of Christ. As with many things in the Book of Mormon, I believe that this is poetically true, if not the direct meaning. Opposition to the doctrine of Christ only leads to death, spiritual death at a minimum, which is separation from God. The next Antichrist in the chronology are the priests of Noah. This group is different than the others in that I am giving something of an amalgam of King Noah, his priests, and his people that dragged the prophet Abinadi before King Noah and his priests, as it is through the words placed in the mouths of these people, as well as their actions, that we get the most direct sense of this group. Because of the amalgamation of personalities and characters, the scriptural location and word count is much less accurate. But still, this is where we generally find what they taught. In Mosiah chapters 12 through 17, chapter 20, and chapters 23 to 24. This takes place with about 2,907 words. It happens in the land of Nephi, and particularly in the city of Nephi. The initial encounter with Abinadi, the prophet, happens at a 148 BC. There's another encounter between 145 and 123 BC, and then again 123 to 121 BC. The conflict is primarily with Abinadi, and then with Alma I. Their teachings, we have not sinned, we are guiltless. The prophet lied, and his warnings are vanity. Salvation comes through the law of Moses. The idea of Jesus Christ coming to earth is blasphemy. The brethren of Amulon did not teach about God, the law of Moses, nor the words of Abinadi. They keep records for societal literacy. What are their actions? They were angry with Abinadi. They took him and carried him before the king. They falsely accused Abinadi. They cast Abinadi the prophet into prison. 
They brought him before an inquisition. They condemned Abinadi to death. They sought to take the prophet by force. They cast out those who defended the prophet. They sent guards to follow those supporting the prophet. They bound, whipped, and burned alive a prophet of God. Later, both Noah and his priests fled when threatened by attacking Lamanites. The priests of Noah abducted daughters of Lamanites to become wives. They used their wives to soften the hearts of the Lamanite army. They exerted authority over the people of Alma I. They threatened death against those who prayed to God. Amulon was made a king and ruler over the people. His priests taught the Nephite language throughout Lamanite lands. What was their intent? To maintain a comfortable life. They sought to confuse and accuse a prophet. They governed by fear. They were scared of the prophet, scared of the voice of the people, scared of the sycophantic warnings of the priests. It seems that Amulon and his fellow priests of Noah were motivated by materialistic pursuits. They wanted power, nice things about them, wives, control, and influence. So what was their character? They were gifted in speech, gifted in political discourse, effectively manipulated every leader with whom they came in contact, other than a prophet of God. And what were the results? Noah was burned by fire by those he refused to let return to their families. And we are told in Alma 24, verse 7, and I quote, And thus the Lamanites began to increase in riches, and began to trade one with another, and wax great, and began to be a cunning and a wise people, as to the wisdom of the world, yea, a very cunning people, delighting in all manner of wickedness and plunder, except it were among their own brethren. Close quote. This description comes as a result of the instructions provided by the priests of Noah to the Lamanites. The priests of Noah were hunted and killed by the Lamanites for their own intolerance. We will discuss the critical importance of the priests of Noah with respect to strategy in the next part of the podcast. What we see in this group is the dynamic of what happens when a group based off Antichrist beliefs gains control of a society. Where do they take the people, and what do they seek to do to control the people? I hope it is clear that Antichrist leaders gather power and seek to deny freedoms to others, even as they criticize the doctrine of Christ for supposedly doing the same. The single most influential Antichrist is a man named Nehor. He is a fascinating character in that we know he was successful, but we don't know for how long. There are two significant groups that later missionaries come into contact with who are referred to as after the order of Nehor, or something similarly. The people taught by Aaron, the son of Mosiah, who are also referred to as Amalekites and Amulonites, and the people from the city of Ammonihah taught by the prophet Alma too, and his companion Amulek. Nehor's influence extended to both Lamanite and Nephite lands, 
and was taught for some time before his story begins in the Book of Mormon, as he is being tried for murder in the city of Zarahemla at the same time that Aaron is teaching people in the Lamanite-controlled land of Nephi, who are Nehor's followers. We will not know why or how this happened. We can suppose a lot of possibilities. However, for now, let us simply recognize that we are only seeing through a small window of this man's actions and influence. As you read his story, which I recommend that you do for all of them, Nehor was challenged and he responded to the intellectual challenge with violence, which resulted in the murder of Gideon, a person who will figure prominently in our discussion of the Xenophytes in the next part of the podcast. For this murder, Nehor is brought before Alma too, who is both the chief judge and a prophet. This is the first challenge to the new system of governance. The kingdom of the Nephites had only recently changed from a kingdom to a magistracy, ruled by judges of laws. As we will discuss more later, nearly every change in government, whether that be a change in king or a change in chief judge, is accompanied by some contention and dissension. Nehor is that contention that accompanies the change from king to chief judge. Nehor is talked about in Alma chapter 1, verses 2 to 16. We are only given about 656 words on his teachings and life. This takes place in the land of Zarahemla and in the city of Zarahemla. As we discussed, though, he probably traveled much more extensively than that. The parts that we are given in Alma chapter 1 take place somewhere between 91 and 88 BC. The main conflict, at a physical level, is with Gideon, who will be murdered, and at an intellectual level, with Alma too. So what were his teachings? He bears down against the church. Every priest and teacher ought to become popular, not to labor with their hands, be supported by the people. All mankind should be saved at the last day, not fear or tremble, that they need to lift up their heads and rejoice, that the Lord created all men, redeemed all men, and all men should have eternal life, meaning there is no judgment for things done on this earth. What were his actions? He preached. He was prideful. He wore costly apparel. He killed Gideon with the sword. He was judged by Alma too. He pled with much boldness. He was executed by stoning, maybe. We're not actually told that part, but we are told he was taken to the top of a mountain where he suffered an ignominious death. It is imagined by me that that meant he was stoned. It is useful to note that stoning occurs in multiple ways. One of the ways, I think the most commonly believed, is that people cast stones at the accused. Another way is that the accused was cast onto stones, in this case, tossed from a high uh, location onto stones. What was his intent? To get gain. He preached for the sake of riches and honor. What was his character? He was large and strong and bold. Now, when I say large and strong, think again about how I described Mormon in an earlier episode. 
large might be physically large, but it also might be societally large or important, or both. What were the results? People supported him and gave him money. He recanted all that he taught just prior to his execution. He died. He was executed for the crime of murder. But still, priest crafts spread. And we have two groups that are referred to either as the profession of Nihor, or individuals referred to that way, or groups referred to as the order of Nihor, the people of Ammonihah. We are told about them in Alma chapters 8 through 14. Alma 2 is there between 82 and 81 BC. So in brief, what do we know about them? They're sinful. They have foolish traditions. People are mocked for ideas. People are persecuted for ideas. People are driven out of the community for their ideas. The people of Ammonihah burn books. They execute people for their beliefs. And people are imprisoned and battered for those beliefs and ideas. The other order of Nehor groups are the Amalekites and Amulonites. We're told about them in Alma chapter 21, and the time frame is 90 to 77 BC. I will talk briefly about the source of the groups in a minute, but they get angry with people who teach in opposition to what they believe. They mock them. They harden their hearts against those teachings that oppose what they believe. And those who teach are taken and cast into prison. Nehor's legacy lived on for decades after his execution. It is somewhat ironic that the Antichrist individual who seems to have the greatest influence beyond his actual life experience is the one discussed in the fewest words. I would suggest that part of this is that Mormon probably felt that the explanation of the behaviors of the groups influenced by him, and particularly the people of Ammonihah, give a sufficient explanation of the logical extreme to which these beliefs lead. I want to digress for a bit to discuss the two groups referred to as after the order of Nehor in Lamanite lands. They were the Amalekites and Amulonites. Both groups were apparently named after their initial leaders. Amulon was the chief priest of Noah, and that answers the source of that name. Who was Amalekai? This is more difficult. There are two people named Amalekai in the Book of Mormon. One was one of the Nephite record keepers listed in the Book of Omni and in the words of Mormon. He was the record keeper who gave the sacred records to King Benjamin, who then combined, for the first time since Nephi, both the secular and religious records of the people. The second is one of the brothers of Ammon, who went with him to find the people of Zenith. This is a man that we will talk about in the next part of our podcast, and not the famous Ammon, who is the son of King Mosiah. It seems unlikely that either of these Amalekites were the founder of a Nephite dissenter group after the order of Nehor. Amulon is the third designated dissension from the Nephites to the Lamanites. The previous two did not have a leader named. They are mentioned in Jerem chapter 1 verse 13 and Words of Mormon chapter 1 verse 16. 
I am supposing that one of these two dissensions was led by a man named Amalekai. How did the Amulonites and the Amalekites, or the people of Ammonihah, come to be after the order of Nehor? We are told, or at least it is implied, that before he was arrested for murder, Nehor may have traveled throughout the Nephite lands. We are told that people supported him and gave him money. This makes for a simple explanation of how the people of Ammonihah came to understand his teachings and adopt them. He may have lived and taught there for a while, or people who heard his teachings elsewhere brought them to Ammonihah. How about the Amulonites and Amalekites? I think that there are two reasonable explanations. One, Mormon might have been speaking conceptually when he said that they were after the order of Nehor, in the sense that what they believed and did was similar to what Nehor taught and advocated. Two, it was literal, and somehow Nehor would have been with those people and taught them. Both are possible. The second is a bit more problematic, as we are not given a lot of examples in this period of the Book of Mormon record of people traveling between the two main groups of Lamanites and Nephites. My crazier supposition has me thinking that he might have been a descendant of a priest of Noah who came to Zarahemla with the people of Limhi and then returned to his relatives in the land of Nephi and shared his thinking with them and other Nephite dissenters before returning to the land of Zarahemla. That is some loose supposition, so don't put too much stock in it. Let's go back to the next Antichrist. The longest discussion of the beliefs from any one person with the label Antichrist is that of Korahor. This is intriguing in that he is the person for whom we have the weakest description of him personally. We are not told about his looks, his voice, his stature, anything. Both Sherem and Nehor seem to have been good-looking and charismatic. Korahor must have been charismatic as well, or how would he have convinced people to support him materially? He was also the most extreme of the Antichrists in terms of his teachings as we shall see. Korahor is discussed in Alma chapter 30, verses 6 through 60, which covers about 2,511 words. Let's put that in perspective. Sherem is discussed in 927 words, Nehor in 656, and Korahor in more than 2,500. The physical location, we're given several for Korahor. He's in the land of Zarahemla generally. He's specifically in the land of Jershon, the land of Gideon, which are both cities as well as lands, and in the city of Zarahemla. He also is in the land of Antionum. This takes place between 76 and 74 BC. His primary conflict initially is with Ammon, in this case, one of the sons of King Mosiah, or Ammon II, and Alma II, his teachings. He's against the prophecies concerning the coming of Christ. There is no Christ. No man can know of the future or about Christ. Prophecies are false and foolish traditions. Ye cannot know what ye cannot see. Remission of sins is crazy. Belief 
of your fathers leads towards crazy beliefs. No atonement for sins. Man is the measure of all things, genius and strength. There is no crime. There's nothing beyond death. Foolish traditions to be bound to ordinances and performances which exist to usurp power and keep people in ignorance. People are in bondage to religious beliefs. He rejects the sins of laymen. He accuses priests of glutting themselves on the labor of others. There is no God. At the end, he doesn't deny the existence of God, just no belief in God, and he denies any testimony of God. What are his actions? He preaches. He travels to Jershon, where he's taken, bound, and carried to the high priest and chief judge. He's carried out of Jershon, where he then decides to travel to Gideon. And there he is taken again before a high priest and a chief judge. The chief judge in Gideon conveys him to Zarahemla, under armed guard, if you will, where he is then questioned by Alma too. He requests a sign. He's struck dumb as a sign. He admits to lying about there being no God. He admits that the devil came to him as an angel of light. He asks for the curse to be removed. He is cast out to become a beggar. What is his intent? He is possessed of a lying spirit. He wants to reclaim the people with carnally pleasing teachings. We're given very little of his character other than being told that he was an antichrist, which doesn't really describe him very much. What are the results? He led away the hearts of many. He led women and men to commit whoredoms. Once the curse of Korahor is revealed, his followers repent, and he will be trampled to death by the Zoramites. There are two thus-we-see statements connected with Korahor. Korahor dies in obscurity. He is simply trampled like an insignificant beggar. Mormon provides the fitting summary of what his life's efforts mean with two of his editorial thus-we-see statements in Alma chapter 30, verse 60, and I quote, And thus we see the end of him who perverteth the ways of the Lord. And thus we see that the devil will not support his children at the last day, but doth speedily drag them down to hell. Close quote. Mormon's lessons are direct. If we pervert the ways of the Lord, the result is death. That could be physical death, as it was in the case of Korahor. It could be the death of institutions and activities that we love, like the death of our family or community. Or it could literally be our own death. The results of the life that Korahor advocated is anarchy and collapse. The second warning is that there is no cooperation with the devil. He is not a companion or someone with whom you can have a binding bargain. He will use you and then let you collapse and be destroyed. You have no claim on the devil for assistance if you have done his work, and he will let you fail as that is what he wants. Our final Antichrist is another group. Interestingly enough, this is the very group that trampled Korahor. There is rich storytelling connection as one Antichrist comes to an end as the result of the actions of another Antichrist. The Zoramites can be a bit confusing in that they are called after this name, which is the name of their leader, 
However, they live in the land of Antionum. I also want to distinguish between these Zoramites and the descendants of Zoram, the servant of Laban, who came with Nephi out of Jerusalem. These are not the same people, and not necessarily of the same lineage, though of that we cannot be certain. The location of the group is important to the purpose of the story. They are on the edge of the wilderness that is close to Lamanite lands, allowing for them to easily communicate with the Lamanites, as they will later do. Zoram too, his teachings and people, are one of the most influential antichrists in the Book of Mormon, as we will come in contact with leaders and fighters from the Zoramites from this point in the record until the coming of Christ. For this reason alone, it is worth understanding who they are and what they taught. I want to note that this was a substantial missionary effort with a sort of dream team of missionaries. Alma II, Amulek, three of the sons of Mosiah, Zeezrom, a recent convert from the order of Nehor, and two of Alma II's sons. These were heavy hitters, the best possible, and yet they could not fully change the course of things. For all those discouraged in their missionary efforts, this is worth remembering. It isn't about the results as much as the connection to God through the effort expended. Why did Alma II lead this missionary effort? Mormon provided an explanation for why Alma II directs the missionary activity toward the Zoramites in Alma chapter 31, verses 4 and 5, and I quote, now the Nephites greatly feared that the Zoramites would enter into a correspondence with the Lamanites and that it would be the means of great loss on the part of the Nephites. And now, as the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just, yea, it had had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them Therefore, Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God. The word of God is transformational. It makes us better people as we want to be better people and change our actions to match our desires. Alma too knew this and he wanted to prevent a war. We will come back to this discussion later on in our series as it is connected to a war that follows. Now, what was it that the Zoramites believed and taught? We're told about this in Alma chapters 31 through 35. Now, most of those chapters are the teachings of Alma too and Amulek to the people of the Zoramites. The teachings of the Zoramites are really only covered in about 2,280 words. They lived in the land of Antionum. This takes place at 74 BC, and the main conflict between the people of Zoram uh, is with Alma II and Amulek. What did they teach? Well, they were perverting the ways of the Lord. They taught idolatry. They did not observe the performances of the church, keep the commandments of God or his statutes according to the law of Moses, did not pray daily. God is a spirit now and forever. God separated the Zoramites from the Nephites. The Zoramites are a selected, chosen, and holy people. There shall be no Christ. God is eternally the same. The Zoramites are elected by God to have this knowledge. 
a knowledge of Christ binds people down and takes them far from God. What were their actions? They gathered together in the land of Antionum near the south wilderness. They built synagogues. They gathered one day a week for worship. Their worship involved a public recited declaration from a raised platform and stand. I will quote it from Alma 31 verse 22, thanking their God that they were chosen of him and that he did not lead them away after the tradition of their brethren and that their hearts were not stolen away to believe in things to come which they knew nothing about. Close quote. They returned to homes and did not speak of God again until the following week. Hearts are set upon worldly wealth. Hearts are lifted up to boasting and pride. Cast the poor out of the synagogues, angry that the word preached by the missionaries would destroy their craft. Sought to secretly know the mind of the people. Cast the believers out of the land. Their intent. They were dissenters from the Nephites. Unclear if they had already begun to work with the Lamanites, but this designation gives some semblance of credibility to that end. They were seemingly motivated by material wealth and temporal success. They are driven by a sense of earthly achievement. Their character? They were wealthy, successful, and influential. What were the results? The believers in the doctrine of Christ left the land of Antionum and came over to Jershon. The rulers of Jershon were threatened if the people were not driven out from that land. The Zoramites mixed with the Lamanites. They stirred up the Lamanites to anger against the Nephites and encouraged the Lamanites to go to war with the Nephites. Many future Lamanite captains and chief captains came from the Zoramites. As we look across the Antichrist, there is a spectrum presented in the Book of Mormon, much as we all face a spectrum of Antichrist in our present lives. Sherem challenges the notion of Christ and that there will be a Redeemer. The priests of Noah claim to hold to the law of Moses, though that is debunked by the prophet Abinadi. These antichrists are only a bit different from the true believers. The arguments are nuanced, and it is about who is the mouthpiece of truth or what is the particularly correct path. Then you have the extreme of Korahor, that there is no law and no punishment. There is no God, no afterlife, and death is the end of it all. The Book of Mormon provides the full gamut of what we see today. I regularly listen to podcasts from a variety of people who could be labeled antichrists. The people are smart, well-informed, and well-spoken. The ones I listen to advocate for many things with which I agree, and the material they provide helps me to better understand my world and my arguments. They are still antichrists in one form or another. It may simply be that they are atheists and teach that there is no God and that organized religion is of little value. There have been other voices, in 2020 in particular, that were loud on the streets calling for anarchy and the effective end of law. I share this perspective to help you liken the scriptures to your own lives. There are current and present voices like each of the five we have discussed. As I have said, I regularly listen to many. I must always appreciate how to have an intelligent discourse without losing myself in the anti-Christian portion of what is presented. As I suggest, we all should, 
There are many people and groups who disagree with me on fundamental beliefs of Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice and the restoration of the gospel through Joseph Smith. I need to work with these people and groups on the many things about which we agree to have a better society. I think we are given the variety of presentations of Antichrist to help us know how and when to draw the line about when to work with or interact with someone. When do I not surrender the 10% where we disagree? It is certainly when a person acts like Nahor and enforces his Antichrist teachings through violence. It is also when, like the Zoramites, a group seeks to enforce Antichrist teachings through the use of the perversion of law. The most extreme Antichrists murder, cast people out, and are intolerant. Remember that Antichrists anciently and presently are attractive, well-spoken, successful, and interesting to listen to. They are the voices that appeal to large groups of people. In a modern sense, they would have been the Instagram models, the Twitter influencers, and the public figures we have today. They said things and say things that sound pleasing, but are destructive to my spiritual health and well-being, and maybe to the health and well-being of the society. Antichrists are fundamentally destroyers. They are not builders. They tear down people and institutions and societies because that is what Satan does. Christ builds people, temples, institutions, and societies. I invite you to reflect on the descriptions of Antichrists in the Book of Mormon so that you can better negotiate a life between and around the Antichrist today. I want to advocate a tolerant approach. I am not using the label Antichrist to be harmful or to be mean-spirited. The term, as defined, is one who tries to oppose the doctrine of Christ or to supplant Christ by putting in some counterfeit belief or teaching. There are many who do not believe in Christ and advocate positive things. As we listen and work with others, even many others, who share much but not all of what we believe, it is important for us to be able to recognize the nuances and be able to both push back on Antichrist behavior as well as to pull forward Antichrists who might be willing to work for the betterment of our societies and our lives. The next episode addresses some details that we have not yet explained, but which are useful for understanding the complexity present in the record of the large plates of Nephi. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com. That's all one word, warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com. Until next time.